Jamie for sharing that scripture and her time with us this morning. As we um, get into Acts 25 here in just a minute, um, just with the deal, I wanted to just say a quick word about where we're where we're headed in the uh, coming weeks. Uh, next week, I've asked uh, Brother Barry Porter, um, who is Bringing together the missionaries of the country of Georgia uh, to come and be our, our guest pastor next Sunday. I'm looking forward to hearing from him. They will hopefully, by the end of this year, um, actually be in Georgia. That's the plan, but they've got a few loose ends. Uh, they're still seeking to tie up. So be, please keep me in prayer for the porters on that, and we'll be hearing from, from Barry next week. And then two weeks from today, uh, we're going to do something a little different for Christmas this year. Many of you may have grown up with this, but it, it's... Uh, not something that was a normal part of my growing up, but uh, it's called Advent. Uh, the word Advent uh, means an, an appearing or, or a coming, and, and it's a way of preparing our hearts uh, for Christmas. And we're going to be doing several things uh, through the season of Advent, which will start on December 1st, which is a Sunday, and the last be Christmas Eve. It'll be five services, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, and then Christmas Eve will be the final uh, message for for Advent, and there are various themes that we'll be working through, but the main text will be uh, John chapter 1, and we have a, a wonderful little devotional called The One True Light, uh, it's written by Tim Chester, we have a bunch of copies of that available over here, we were able to get them really cheap, they're only going to uh, be about $5 if you can help us out with the cost of that, but um, it's a wonderful daily devotional, if you can start on December 1st and work all the way up through uh, Christmas Eve, it's just a, a great way for families or individuals or or friends to even get together and, and share some time in the Word and be encouraged uh, by that. So we have some other things in, in, in the works as well, but just know that's coming. We want to encourage you to pick up a copy of the One True Light, even if you don't have uh, any money for that today, just go ahead and grab one and be ready for uh, December 1st to start that together. We'll be walking through that Advent season. But for today, uh, we're going to come to Acts 25, and I've entitled today's message, uh, Faith Under Fire, Part 3, uh, because, not just because we needed a good trilogy of things to do that everybody's doing these days, but but because this is the third time that Paul is, is facing a, a hearing because of his faith, that he is on trial because of his trust in Jesus Christ. And, and so he has been on trial before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish uh, Supreme Court, if you will. He has been on trial before the governor, whose name was Felix, who has been deposed by the time we get to Acts 25, but he has left Paul in prison. He's been now there in prison in Caesarea for two years, and now he is brought out of prison. There's a new governor on the scene whose name is Festus. Now, historically, Festus was a much better governor than Felix. Felix was one of the most hated governors ever to rule over Judea as the Roman representative, but, but, but Festus, uh, which just reminds me of the Adams family growing up. I just can't help but think about that show, uh, Uncle Festus there from the Adams family. I know I put that image in your mind. But Festus was known as one of the better governors. The only problem was he only ruled for about two to three years. So he didn't have a lot of time to fix what Felix had so radically broken. And, and by the time you get to the end of the first century, you find that the Jews and the Romans have been in open conflict and war against one another. And part of the reason is because of some of the bad governors like Felix and the way they had mistreated the Jewish people. But here we find Paul on trial now for the third time. He has been in prison again for two years. He has been trusting the Lord to keep 
his promise that he made them back in chapter 23. We'll come to that later. But for now, we find him facing another appearing before wicked, ungodly men who do not have his best interests at heart, who do not care a thing about the kingdom of God or the gospel. And Charles Spurgeon, in writing about this passage, said, we ought never to fear those who are defending the wrong side. For since God is not with them, their wisdom is folly, their strength is weakness, and their glory is their shame. And we live in a day here in the United States of America in which increasingly people of power are defending the wrong side. Now I know in many corners of our culture today, people don't even want to talk about right and wrong anymore. Right and wrong has become a relative term, but we know that we have been given by God himself a standard of right and wrong given to us in his word. And it is that in which we cannot rewrite according to our own whims or our own desires. There are certainly many things within the word of God that, that we might do differently. That we might have chosen to, to, to have inscribed differently or we might desire to rewrite. But we have no right to do so. Our holy God, the one true and living God, the all-powerful God has spoken. And we are called to walk in obedience to what he has revealed to us. But we live in a culture that's increasingly moving away from a biblical basis. And so how do we respond in days like these? We'll see once again from the Apostle Paul a great example of what to do when our faith is under fire. So when our faith is on trial, I want to see again today, there are three things that we can find ourselves experiencing as the people of God, when we find that our faith is under fire, when we find that our trust in Jesus is being put on trial, when we are specifically facing false accusations because of our faith. The first is this. Look at verses 1 through 5 there that Andy read for us. And, and you see here the Lord's providential care. It's interesting that in this chapter, in chapter 25 of the book of Acts, the name of God is not mentioned one time. The name of Jesus is not mentioned one time. The Holy Spirit is not mentioned one time. It's in many ways kind of like the book of Esther, where you don't find the name of God in the book of Esther, so much so that, that Martin Luther wanted to kick it out of the canon of Scripture because he said this is a, is a godless book. Why would we have it in there? And yet, and yet the reality is, God is all over the book of Esther, preserving his people, preparing a way for them to against un, 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 unrecognizable and in huge odds for them to be able to come to a place of redemption and deliverance. And that's what God is doing here for the Apostle Paul. There's a new governor on the scene. His name is Festus. And it's made clear later in the chapter that he has a desire to be friends with the very people who were seeking to put Paul to death. That's not a good place to be when the person who is deciding your fate is seeking to side with your enemy. And yet God works here in some amazing ways through the normal, everyday kinds of events. And again, we do see God. Many times in Scripture, we've seen him in the book of Acts acting in miraculous ways outside of the norm. But by and large, we more often see God operating through the normal processes of life. 
and here a simple request for a change of venue in the trial of Paul is to take him back to Jerusalem where the Jews were secretly plotting to have him assassinated on the way. The fact that this new governor who was seeking to curry favor with the Jews refused their first request shows that the hand of God was at work providing for Paul. You see, even when God seems absent, he is still active. We do not always see the hand of God at work in our lives. In fact, there are many times when it seems as though God is absent. Where are you, Lord, is the cry of the scriptures. Especially you go back to the Psalms, you see many places where the psalmist would cry out and it even seems as if they are leveraging heavy complaints against God. How long, O oh Lord, will you allow this suffering to continue? Where are you, God, in the midst of my darkness? And, and we find ourselves many times in those places. And, and the Bible is sharing with us a couple of truths. One, it is good for us to lay our complaints before God. Oftentimes we seem to shrink back from that. We try to put on a pretty face and act as if everything is okay and we act as if we can't really talk to God in that way. And yet look at, again, look at the Psalms and you see a, a bare honesty. It even seems at times offensive. Can you really talk that way to God? And yet you can lay your heart bare before him and you'll begin to see that in those moments when he seems the most absent when you look back on those seasons of life you often see that's truly when God was the most active and doing things that were unseen and yet fruitful Deuteronomy 31 as Moses was preparing to hand off leadership to this young man named Joshua he gave him this charge Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 he said be strong and courageous do not fear, be in dread of them, of your enemies, for the Lord your God, he who is the one who goes with you, and he will never leave you or forsake you. The author of Hebrews takes up that promise, and Hebrews chapter 13 reminds us that he will never leave us or forsake us as his people. He has promised his presence and his protection and his guidance in our lives. It doesn't mean that difficult things won't come. In fact, we're promised that in this life we'll have trouble. We will face persecutions, and especially the more faithfully we walk with Jesus, as the Apostle Paul was here, the more faithfully that we walk with Jesus, the more we will experience the things that Jesus experienced, the things that Paul experienced, and the things that others who walked in those steps have experienced. I could also say this, that even when God is incognito, he is still in control. Again, God is not known here. And yet what would cause a Roman governor who is seeking the favor of the Jews that he is in, entrusted with ruling over, what would cause him to refuse their very first request, which seemed like a legitimate request? We just want to bring Paul back to Jerusalem where the crime was committed in the first place that he might be tried before a court of his peers. And yet this governor chose not to honor that request. And Paul was rescued from the plot. Romans 8, one of the most precious chapters in all of the Bible, asks this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, 
who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give to us all things? I mean, think about it. Believers in this room, if God did not withhold the life of his one dear son, but gave him up for us, then why is it that we find ourselves so oftentimes fearing things that are infinitely less than that? question being asked is if God is for us who can be against us no one can stand against us I mean it looks like Paul against the world here if you ever felt that way if you ever uh, felt trapped between the rock and the hard place and in a way that seems like there's no way out of this and we've even seen Paul in previous weeks he was he got discouraged and then Jesus came to him there visibly in the jail cell and, and, and dwelt there with him in his place of captivity and he encouraged him and spoke a promise to him that it was he was not done, that God still had more for him to do, that he was going to preach the gospel in Rome as he had desired. And the same is true for those who seek to walk faithfully before God in our lives. So we see the Lord's providential care Second thing we see when our faith is on trial that we can experience and will experience the enemies, the conquerors of God. That's what we see in the next few verses beginning there in verse 6. That the Jews came to Caesarea to bring charges against Paul. And it's the same old story. It's the same things they've been trying to pin on him for two plus years now. They're, they're coming back with the same. They had nothing new. It's a new governor, but it's the same old charges against Paul. Let's look at those charges just for a minute here. As they come before Festus, bringing charges against Paul, they said that this man, they were bringing serious charges, verse 7, they were bringing serious charges against him that they could not prove. What were those charges? Well, Paul responds to them in verse 8. He argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. Paul pleads not guilty to these three charges. That he had broken the law, that he had defiled the temple, and that he was seeking to cause an insurrection against Caesar, which, by the way, that was the one charge that would have, bear, bear, would have borne the, the greatest weight with a Roman governor because their primary charge was, at all costs, keep the peace. Whoever you have to crucify, whatever you have to do, the primary goal of a Roman governor was keep the peace at all costs. And so for them to bring a charge against Paul that he was one that was seeking uh, to cause an insurrection against the Caesar to, to break the peace, this was a very serious charge, and yet Paul denied any involvement. And the truth of the matter is, church, we have an enemy that brings even weightier charges against we have an adversary, an accuser, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But we also have an advocate before the Father who pleads our case day and night, not based upon our merits, but based upon the merits of our advocate. Let's think about some of the charges that are leveraged against us by our enemies. 
first is you. And your sins still remain. How many times as believers do we continue to wrestle against this very thing? Even though we know, we know the truths of the scriptures that Christ died for our sins. We know the truths of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just some of our unrighteousness, but all of our unrighteousness. We know the promise of God that he has completed all that was necessary for our redemption. There's nothing left to be repaid or, or undone. It has all been accomplished. And yet so oftentimes the, the enemy comes along and whispers in our ear, you're not really forgiven. Your sin still remains. And it keeps so many of us from walking in the victory that Christ purchased for us at the cross. writer of Hebrews cautions us and says and even in those moments we risk walking in such a way that it's as if Christ needs to be crucified over and over and over again when we walk in that guilt and that shame and will not walk in that which Christ purchased for us we act as if his sacrifice was not sufficient for sin one accusation leveraged against the people of God the second and related to it, as, as Paul was uh, being charged with defiling the temple, that place of worship that the Jews upheld as one of the, as the holiest place in all the world, the second charge against the people of God is oftentimes that your worship is rejected. Because of your sin, how could you possibly come before a holy God and expect to have any kind of hearing? Your worship is, is rejected. You, how could you possibly come and seek to honor God with those filthy lips of yours? How could you possibly come and lay that ugly heart bare before God? How could that possibly be? Your worship is rejected. And yet we find in Scripture so many promises. Yes, the Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, he makes us to become those very kinds of people who will worship him as he desires to be worshipped. And our worship is not rejected because our holy God has made a way to come before him. When Jesus said, be holy as I am holy, he was not setting before us an unattainable standard. He was saying to us, this is what I'm going to do in your life. I'm going to make you holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to do a new work. A new creation is going to be formed in you by the power of God so that you can then come and worship him rightly. The third accusation that's often leveraged against the people of God as Paul was being convicted or charged with rebelling against Caesar Oftentimes we face the charge from our enemy that our rebellion must be punished. You know, oftentimes people will ask of the scriptures, how is it that a loving God could send anyone to hell? And yet the question 
pages of the New Testament, specifically as you read through the book of Romans. Because the main question is not how could a holy and how could a loving God send anyone to hell, but the question is how could a holy God welcome any of us into his presence? For our sin means that we have rebelled against him. We have committed treason against him. And the rightful punishment for treason is death. Even in the Old Testament, it was a constant reminder as they saw the sacrifices at the temple day after day after day. The river of blood pouring out from the altar was a constant reminder that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Someone must pay the penalty for your sin. And the reality of the gospel is this. There are only two individuals that might pay that penalty. It will either be you or it will be Christ. The penalty will not go unpaid. But when Jesus at the cross spoke his final word, it is finished, he was saying the debt is paid in full. There's nothing for you to add to it. Your rebellion has been taken care of. The debt has been paid. And now you can come freely before God. You can come before His throne of grace with confidence. Not confidence in yourself, but confidence in your King. And so we can look at Romans 8 once again. Again, I just encourage you, spend some time with Romans 8 if you are facing discouragement in your faith. Romans 8.33, so then who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The reality is, think about it in our nation. The reality is, if you are declared innocent by the Supreme Court, no lower court can mess with you on those charges. And that's the picture of what's happening here. The fact that God has declared us righteous because not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done in our place as our substitute. That because God has declared us righteous, there's no one that can bring any legitimate charges against us. In Romans 8, 1, it says that, that, that both when being in Christ means that, that we there's no condemnation for us. And by the way, for those of us that are a little more internally focused at times, that includes self-condemnation. If God has not condemned you, then you have no right to condemn yourself. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. See, his death was the payment of the price, but his resurrection was the sign. It's done. Now, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then you're still in your sin and you're without hope. We're the most pitiful people on earth because we're trusting in something that's false. If Christ, if Jesus is still in the grave outside of Jerusalem. But because Christ was raised from the dead, and the very linchpin of our faith, because Christ was raised from the dead, we have an unending hope. He who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed, who in truth, who in every moment is interceding for us. Not only did he die for you, not only did he raise from the dead to give you eternal life, but he is praying, interceding for you before the highest king, the highest judge, night and day. And who then will bring the charges against you? Jesus. 
Bible this morning because we've seen the Lord's providential care and the enemy's preposterous charges. We want to see that because of these things, we can walk in the believer's pathetic faith. It's the promises of God that will help you to overcome the kinds of things that we're talking about this morning, whether the false accusations are from someone else or from from your own heart. By the way, I just want to say to us this morning that, that when we are falsely accused, we're in really good company. As we walk through the Old Testament, we find Joseph. Joseph, who was falsely accused of taking advantage of Potiphar's wife, and he had to spend years in prison with false charges. But the Lord was with him to deliver him. And Joseph recognized the hand of God in all these things. We find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were falsely accused of disrespecting the king. And they had to spend an afternoon in a fiery furnace. But the hand of the Lord was with them and the person of Christ was there in the fire with them to deliver them. We find Daniel who was falsely accused of disregarding the king's commands and he had to spend a night in the lion's den but the Lord was with him to deliver him. We see Mordecai who was falsely accused of being a lawbreaker and he was facing the gallows but the Lord was with him to deliver him and his foe hung on the very gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. We find Job who was falsely accused of serving the Lord for selfish reasons, and he endured the loss of nearly everything that he had, but the Lord was with him to deliver and to restore him. We see Jeremiah, who was falsely accused of deserting to the enemy, and he was beaten and he was thrown in prison, but the Lord was with him to deliver him. And most of all, we see our Savior Jesus. We look to Luke 23, we see Jesus was falsely accused of misleading the nation, of forbidding others from paying taxes, and of usurping the authority of the king. And because of this, he went to the cross. But in so doing, he accomplished the saving of many souls. Jesus facing false accusations, none of us would be saved. Now that is no vindication for those who falsely accuse people. But it is a reminder that God accomplishes glorious things through the glorious defeat of sin. If we were to go back to Acts chapter 19, we see the Apostle Paul setting his sights on Rome. It says, now after these events, Paul here in Ephesus, he was resolved in the Spirit. He was convicted by the Spirit. He was sent out by the Spirit in this way. Uh, resolved to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, which is where all these events that we're looking at started, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. The Holy Spirit moved in the life of the Apostle Paul and said, Jerusalem first, then Rome. Now he's been captive in Jerusalem there for two years. Acts 23, as the Apostle Paul was facing discouragement as he is as captive there in jail in Jerusalem, it says the following night, the Lord has stood by him and said, 
take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You see, the promises of God will enable you to walk in a courageous faith that would be utterly impossible apart from his promises. And so we see in the life of the Apostle Paul, it was this very moment when Jesus stood by him there in the jail cell, when Jesus spoke to him there in the jail cell, when Jesus encouraged him there in the jail cell, it was that moment that solidified for Paul everything that was to come. And by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, where do you see Paul? He is in Rome, and he is testifying to the highest of kings in the land that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Three truths as we finish this morning. First of all, we know this, that we are acquitted by faith in Christ. We are acquitted by faith in Christ. We are declared not guilty before a holy God because of our faith in Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Notice it doesn't say since we will be or since we could be. It's saying this is a done deal since we have been justified by faith, declared righteous before God because of our faith in Christ, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be very clear here. The basis of our salvation is not our faith. It's the work that Christ accomplished on our behalf. But faith is the means by which we take hold of that, by which we lay hold of what Christ has done, and it it has this effect in our life of changing literally everything. If you've been justified by God, it changes the whole course of your life. You cannot be the same after that moment. We're acquitted by faith in Christ. Secondly, as Paul would say in verse 11 and later in the book of Philippians, that we are alive to Christ and death is gain. Paul said, listen, guys, if I've committed any crime deserving of death, I'm not going to try to get out of that. Again and again and again, he had talked about living before God and man with a clear conscience. He said, I know I've done nothing wrong, but if you convict me in this court of a capital crime, I will not try to get away. In Philippians 1.21, he wrote, for, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It changes the way that we live when we no longer fear death. Because we understand that death is merely a doorway to the eternal life Christ gives us. And thirdly, and we'll spend a little bit of time here before we end, verse 12, we're reminded that we are ambassadors for King Jesus. At the end here, Paul makes this appeal to Caesar. For every Roman citizen who was facing capital charges, there was a Roman law that if you were facing capital charges, you could make an appeal to a higher court. And Paul goes all the way to the highest court of the land when he makes the appeal to Caesar, the emperor of Rome. He goes all the way to the highest court. He says, I make my appeal to Caesar in the face of these charges. But two things are happening here. Paul is not simply trying to get out of what he's facing. Paul is recognizing this is the very avenue by which God is going to accomplish the promise that he made him back in Acts 23. 
you must testify about me in Rome. The Lord had already said that, and Paul sees very clearly this is the means by which God will fulfill his promise. Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness as Paul was going to Rome, they all saw him as a prisoner. And yet he was clearly an ambassador for Christ. They saw him as a man in chains, and yet he was the most free of everyone in the courtroom that day. They saw him as one deserving death, and yet Paul said, I already died with Christ long ago. There on the Damascus Road, when Christ confronted me on the way to Damascus, I died that day. And now no one can take my life from me because it's hidden with Christ in God. And so we can say this church, with all that we've seen in the scriptures in the last several weeks, we can say this, then who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is where our security stand. This is where our anchor is found. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? The man who wrote this, the Apostle Paul, had faced all of those things. He said, none of those things change the reality that I am infinitely loved by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He demonstrated his love for me in this, that while I was still a sinner living in rebellion against him, Christ died for me. He took my place at the cross to show me the love of God. And he sealed that love by rising from the dead to guarantee to me eternal life through faith in his name. And he now intercedes for me night and day praying for me. So who can be against me? responds to his own question in verse the next few verses knowing all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord is high and exalted language to help us to see our high and exalted position in Christ. And that we can walk in victory before him no matter what the accusations that may come our way. If we are walking in faith toward him, if we're seeking to share his gospel and be faithful as the ambassadors he has called us to be, then we need not fear but can walk in faith and see his victory put on display. I invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment. Perhaps as we've talked about false accusations this morning, there are some that are ringing in your ears today. Your heart is heavy and your knees are 
may not take thought that the enemy continues to whisper in your ear. And when I have prayed for you this morning, would you see a better day? The truth is this, we are sinners who gave into the hands of death. But Christ has spoken a better word. That the wrath of God has been reconciled by the price that Jesus paid on the cross. He is resting in the power of the cross right now. Perhaps you find yourself in a place of depression or discouragement deep in a mire that you don't know how to get out of. And I encourage you today that God is laying before us these precious promises. If you might take them at his word. He has said to us that all who call upon the name of Jesus and all look to Him in faith, take Him at His word and trust in Him that we will be saved. This is the promise of God. Father, I pray for us today. Lord, the reality is for many of us that our faith comes with a truth Salvation is not dependent upon the quality of our faith, but upon the quality of our trust. And I pray that just as the apostle did, that we whose calls would continually run again and again to the reality of the empty tomb, Lord, that we too might run again and again to the empty tomb and be reminded that the one who died for us rose for us and is interceding for us. And what he has accomplished is more than sufficient. And so we can rest in that. Father, we also consider this morning as we come toward the end of our service that there continues to be many here in our own community and around the world who have not yet heard the saving grace of our God through Christ. And you have given us this treasure in these jars of clay that we might show the world that this power is not from us. It is from you. You have called us to be your ambassadors, to go and proclaim your message among the nations. And that begins here, but it does not end at the county line. So, Father, I pray that we would work mightily now to open our mouths that we might speak. Fill our mouths with words of truth and open the hearts of our hearers that we might see around us people 
coming to faith in Jesus, not because of us, but because of your power at work in us.